Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Um, how have we been doing that on that lately, finding answers, Carrie? <laughs> well, let's see. Um, we've been doing a good amount of crime lately. Uh, last week's... Um, the the murder that took place in Seems Amityville pretty had a clear pretty clear answer. <laughs> I don't think we needed to be brought in oh. for our expertise on finding that answer. You don't think we cracked the case on Ron DeFeo mm, Jr.? No, there are some there are some episodes where I'm like, I think we solved this case. We did it, but uh, this is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was pretty pretty clear what happened. Uh, yeah, well, he told the police what what had happened. Mm-hmm. He's just claimed ever since that it was uh, a demon that made him that made him do it. <laughs> So, this week, we are following up last week's, as we just referenced, uh, Amityville episode, where we covered the murder, the brutal murder of the DeFeo family in the house at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. It's a house on Ocean Avenue. There's a murder on Ocean (laughs) Avenue. As a former emo kid turned emo adult, uh, I will never not think that. Uh, no, of course. I think it I, the uh, the little electric violin riff plays in my head every time I uh, read the name. Yeah. That's like pop punk, right? This is yellow card for our, all of our Gen yes. Z fans. We're referencing, I'm going to say, a 2004 hit by the band Yellow Card. Yellow Card. Their first and only. Um, Ocean Avenue. This week, we're following <laughs> up that Amityville story with... The more famous Amityville story. This is, um, I, I think I mentioned last week, Carrie, what happened to the DeFeo family is the real Amityville horror because it's the only... <laughs> well, to you, yes. It is the thing that actually like happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> Always the skeptic. Uh, yeah, that's my job on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, and th- this week we are going to cover the subsequent haunting uh, that plagued the Lutz family, who moved into the house on Ocean Avenue after the DeFeos checked out early. Oh, boy. I said that thinking it was clever, but you don't check in or out of houses. No. Usually. It's so. not an Airbnb. Well, anyway, after they all uh, were horribly shot in their sleep. Oh, yeah. And so the Lutzes move in, and it's a beautiful home. Let's not forget that. It's it's a really large, lovely house. Yeah, look up pictures. If you it's type got its in, own, like, boathouse, which is wild. If you type in the Amityville Horror, you might get some pictures of the uh, book cover of Jay Anson's 1977 uh, book based on this haunting, uh, which has some, like, creepy flies on the cover. <laughs> Uh, it's a good cover. It's a better cover than it is a book, but we'll get more into that in a minute. Wow. Uh, you'll see some posters for the various, again, dozens of feature films that have been made using the uh, Amityville name. 
but it you can't be all in the same house. No, it's they're, they're, not all it's, of them are even set in Amityville. <laughs> I was going to say, is, are they all even in Long Island? No, <laughs> no. Uh, they they just use the the name. Most of the movies with the Amityville name in there are really just cashing in on the name and there's no connection to the original story but there were there was a series of about uh four or five original films that uh four i think original films that uh i'll say stretch and uh, uh build upon the story that told by the lutzes in this book there was also the remake with ryan reynolds as mr lutz looking uh, yeah. real sweaty a lot uh, that is true. I haven't seen that Amityville Horror remake, but it was the subject of a lawsuit that we'll get to later oh. in this episode. Oh, my. Um, so, as we're referencing, the primary source of the Amityville Horror legend is, appropriately, the book, The Amityville Horror, written by Jay Anson and published September 1977. Um, it's estimated the book has sold about 10 million copies. Certainly qualifies as a bestseller, and as I mentioned, it has spawned dozens of feature films and dozens of books and yada, yada, yada. Uh, uh, Many documentaries. I mean, this book hit at the perfect time. It's post The Exorcist, which, don't forget, was a very, very popular novel first. And after Rosemary's Baby, too, right? Definitely after that, after The Omen. Um, so this kind of weird seventies period, everyone's just really scared about Satan, the devil. Um, like we didn't have, you know, the cold war or whatever to think about Vietnam. Um, but you know, metaphors, metaphors and horror. Uh, have we talked on the podcast before about how our generation maybe finds it harder than our parents' generation to be frightened of the exorcist because we don't like, because they literally <laughs> believed in the, the devil? We, I think we've mentioned that on our um, Cursed Films episode because we did talk about both the exorcist and the omen. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's definitely a thing. And, you know, I've known people who were religious who are my age and find The Exorcist to be the scariest thing. Mm-hmm. I think you have to have that sort of basis and belief. Well, and not just, I mean... I, I mean, it's gruesome and it's it can be frightening, but I think to really feel like, oh, Satan's going to come after me after I watch it, you have to have a basis of belief. Well, yeah, and there's a difference, too, between being a Christian and believing in God and, and the devil, you know, Satan... Uh, kind of in theory versus believing that they're concrete mm-hmm. that satan certainly is a concrete force that can act on our world in a, in a physical way yeah this is a time of a lot of religious horror and also you know there's there's this kind of haunted house horror going on and i think it speaks to a lot of the issues um that are going on at the time we're afraid of other people uh, very much at this point and we're also afraid of kind of the evils in ourselves this is the time of serial killers really coming to the forefront and so possession and, and a haunted house it's kind of very handily taking those themes and making them scary but in a way where it's like well it's not you know me or it's not this guy that might kill me it's a ghost so um it, it takes it it removes you a little bit. And I think that's probably why Amityville Horror hit so perfectly at this time. It's after these established uh, titles in horror have already come out. Well, and it's marketed explicitly as being, you know, a, a tale as terrifying as The Exorcist yes. or Rosemary's Baby. Well, every, everything was. But it's true. But it's real, you yeah. know, but it's true. Well, that was the real twist, wasn't it? Um, 
the movie, the first movie, The Amityville Horror, was made in 1979, followed up by a sequel called Amityville 2, The Possession, in 1982. Possessed Harder. Uh, I think that that one's actually a prequel that's supposed to dramatizes the murders of the DeFeo family as being caused by whatever demonic Ooh. force caused the later haunting. Um, they don't use... They change all the family's names in these movies. That's for the best, I guess. Um, Amityville 3D... In 1983, oh, no. when the everything... flies went... will come at you. <laughs> and then Amityville 4, The Evil Escapes, uh, rounds out the original series. Oh, so that's how we get to like Amityville 12, Indiana, for some reason. Um, no, because <laughs> most of these other ones are not connected in any way to the creators of the original film, to the Lutz family, to the story. It's just you can't trademark the name Amityville, which is an actual town in New York. So you get things like in 1996... Amityville Dollhouse. Oh, it's a very small haunted house. And then in 2015, the Amityville Playhouse. Oh, they're putting on a nice community production of The Music Man and they're possessed. Uh, And then some clearly unconnected to the original story titles like uh, Amityville Prison, uh, the Amityville Harvest, and my personal favorite, Witches of Amityville Academy. I'm sure that's your personal favorite. That's kind of a it's kind of a Harry Potter. Did you enter twist. that into a specific search earlier? Um, I tried to, but it auto-filled. Hmm. As what? Anyway. <laughs> um, the dust jacket blurb for this original book begins on December eighteenth, nineteen seventy-five. A young family of five moved into their new home, complete with finished basement, swimming pool, and boathouse. Oh, they're really throwing that finished basement in. It's like, a, oh, it's yeah. a luxury feature. <laughs> Complete with this finished basement. And a boathouse. 28 days later, they fled in terror, leaving most of their belongings behind. The fantastic story of their experiences was widely publicized on network television, newspapers, and national magazines. But the Lutz family never disclosed the full details to the media. Now, their own carefully reconstructed memories and independent interviews with local clergy and police reveal their entire harrowing story. I mean, I'm in. If that comes out now, I mean, it would be much more scrutinized, but I'm in. Um, Yeah, well, some scrutiny... They left a finished basement? Like, they must have been scared. I know. In this economy? Really. (laughs) In that economy, too. (laughs) I love that we're still focusing on the finished basement and not the pool or the boathouse. Because it leads with it. Yeah, it, it it's sure it's very John Mulaney new in town. <laughs> I'm gay. I have AIDS. I'm new in town. It's like <laughs> the finished basement doesn't seem to fit. The it, pool and the boathouse is pretty swank. Yeah, you got to put it in the middle. You have to bury it between pool and boathouse. <laughs> um, maybe the boathouse. Uh, these were all selling features. Certainly, when the Lutzes first bought One Twelve Ocean Avenue for eighty thousand dollars. Holy shit. In December of 1975. Again, Do you have any idea what that is now? Yes, uh, it's $421,000 in today money. So. Wow. You know, uh, he- here in Fairfield County right now, you you. That's can't... a steal. That's a steal. Absolutely. That's crazy. But we do, we you d- have two separate places to swim. You mean because of the boathouse and the. Well, because you're. On the water. On the water and you have a pool. It just feels very luxurious to me. Well, you remember when we were going down the waterway in Fort Lauderdale, there's all those ha- all those houses have swimming pools that are on the canal. Yeah. The Lutzes moved in December 18th. They knew about the killings at the time, but decided it was no big deal, and it had lowered the price to 
almost within their price range. They had been trying to spend no more than $50,000 on their, uh, you know, kind of step up house. I'm so prepared to move into a murder house today. Yeah, I know. Well, that's a selling feature for you. Yeah, well, it's very different. <laughs> I'm, not, like, I'm not afraid of it as most people would be. Just like a cemetery on or abutting the property isn't a selling point for most people, but for my wife. I will say that we have talked about this. And whenever we do go to a real estate person to try and find a house, I have said, I will tell them we're pro-cemetery. We're pro-cemetery <laughs> I know family. that. I know that some people will not like to buy houses right next to a cemetery, we have no problem with it. Is that a shirt? We're a pro-cemetery family? It is now. <laughs> it, it could mean a our, our, wide variety of things. Our, no, we just put our cartoon faces on it and, uh, you know, we're, we're a, we're a pro-cemetery family. All right, keep an eye on the web store. Um, the book begins, after that intro, on fe- February 5th, 1976 after the fact, as the Lutzes were featured on New York Channel 5's 10 o'clock news. The reporter outside revealed that the Lutzes had moved out of the house after four weeks and mentioned strange voices seeming to come from within themselves and to a power which, quote, actually lifted Mrs. Lutz off her feet toward a closet, behind which was a room not noted on any blueprints. Yeah, so this is all feeling very exorcist. Um, the reporter then ominously intoned that tragedy and misfortune had befallen every family that had previously owned the house. All, both families. <laughs> was, um, exactly. was there others? Um, the family before the DeFeos. I believe the house had been, uh, since it was built, stayed, passed through relatives, so branches of the same family or distantly related people, uh, until the DeFeos bought it. The DeFeos had lived in it happily for 10 years before the murder happened. Well, yeah, I don't know how happily. Uh, well, oh, that's true. Senior was beaten on everyone. Uh, yeah, but I don't think they would have been a totally happy family, no matter what. Uh, oh, yeah, I think you could have put into. them in a, a chateau, and it wouldn't have ended well. Exactly right. Channel 5 also that night interviewed William Weber, who you'll remember from last week's episode, he was Ron DeFeo Jr.'s attorney. Yes. And it's weird that he would be involved. I mean, I guess not that weird that they would want to talk to him because he, he represented the guy who did the murder that presumably was maybe causing this haunting, right? I don't know. You're in news. You, you know that you try to find anyone with a name related to a story. Well, that's true, but th- this is a pretty... I mean, they're obviously pumping up a pretty... Um, outlandish angle here uh, as far as news go uh but channel five interviewed william weber and on this report weber said he had commissioned studies hoping to prove that there was some supernatural force influencing the behavior of anyone living in 112 ocean avenue now why could william weber want to prove such a thing what studies like the ghostbusters yeah, uh, ostensibly the Ghostbusters. Uh, he had reached out to the Psychical Research Institute, and uh, he also said to the news reporter, he said, uh, I'm aware that certain houses could be built or constructed in a certain manner so as to create some sort of, uh, you know, electrical currents through rooms based on the physical structure of the house. So he was suggesting this wasn't a ghostly thing, but there was some kind of a natural phenomenon that made people violent when they lived in this home. Like ley lines or electromagnetic forces. Yes, and he was uh, positing that this was also responsible for whatever had been happening to the uh, Lutz family. 
It's kind of like that haunted hotel we talked about that thought that maybe because it was made of like a lot of quartz or whatever, it had conducted oh, yeah. electric energy. That's right. Mm. There's a and lot that was of water. Too, right? <laughs> well, to you. There's a lot of water nearby. So uh, that could be something. I guess there's a lot of water nearby lots of places, though, and they don't have like statues flying around the room and stuff. Yeah, but you never know what a finished basement is going to attract. Two weeks after that initial news report, the Lutzes held a press conference from, what do you think would be a place, that we, what would, where would make sense to have this press conference from? Well, they, I assume, don't want to go back to the house. Yep, that's Could true. Could be in front of the house, if mm-hmm. they still technically own it. Uh, they were claiming not to ever want to step foot on the property again at this point, so it couldn't be at the house. Uh, no, the Lutzes did their television press conference from William Weber's office. Where they explained to the cameras that the house was being investigated by the Vatican's Council of Miracles, as well as the Psychical Research Institute. Sorry, Society for Psychical Research. Uh, you don't want to get these uh, UFO guys confused because they will they will come after. <laughs> well, they're you. not UFO guys, um, so the, that's an issue. Oh, it all it all melts together. These but yes, psychical research UFO people as well. They have their own specific societies, and they're very happy to be called those. Thank you very much. Yes. So the Lutzes explained that they had, were bringing in their own parapsychologists to study the matter, and that they uh, weren't going to spend another night in the house or near the property, but that it wasn't on sale yet pending the end of their um, investigation. Heavily heavily emphasizing the yet, uh, because they were hoping to make um, their money back on the house at some point. The press conference ended with the Lutzes apparently saying they were cutting off all contact with the media, and they didn't give any more interviews after that. It wasn't until this book drops, the book proudly informs us, <laughs> that anyone got the Lutzes' full story. Mm-hmm. So, what was the Lutzes' story? Well, let's talk about them. George Lutz was, in 1975, 28 years old. Wow. Young. Yes, it's a young family, and they have five kids already. No, oh, I think it's a family of five. Oh, sorry. You're... <laughs> but still, that's three kids. <laughs> they have three kids already. And they have one dog. The oldest is nine. So George was 19, and Kathy 21 when they had their first son. Um, George was the third generation owner, as he would proudly inform anyone who asked, of a, of a family-run land surveying business called William H. Perry Incorporated. Um, so he was doing all right, uh, but this house was a uh, big step up from their last one, um, apparently about four times the value. Mm-hmm. The Lutzes uh, looked at over 50 houses before they could find the one they wanted, and as I said, they were looking to pay between thirty and 50000 Oh, Jesus Christ. Dollars. Oh, my God. But their requirements were they wanted... A, so they were looking to pay between 30 and 50 for... But the house had to be on the water because George had two boats that he wanted to bring with him. It has to also have a swimming pool. It didn't have to have a swimming pool, but George needed enough space to have a home office. Finished basement, baby. And so they had looked at, they say, over 50 houses and couldn't find anything in their price range that had everything they wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, the book describes 112 Ocean Avenue, and uh, again, here I will once again encourage listeners to, if you have a Google machine handy, just pull up a picture of this house. It's a gorgeous house. If you didn't know what what had happened in there, you uh, might want to live in it, and if you do know what has happened there, you definitely want to live in it. (laughs) Um, It is a, in the words of Jay Anson here in the book, uh, a big, rambling, three-story affair with dark shingles and white trim. 
the weird thing is it's a very narrow and very deep lot mm-hmm. and a very narrow, very deep house. Yeah, I remember that from driving by it. So the front door is actually not on the Ocean Avenue side. It's on the like corner street. Yeah. And don't forget those those eye windows. Uh, yes, it had two like rounded eye-like windows. Like uh, kind of rounded triangles. Yes. Near, it, it looked like eyes peering out at you. Near the top of the house. Uh, later owners have renovated that feature out. So, uh, yeah. so the house is a little harder to recognize now, which I think was the idea. Mm-hmm. As they drove up the driveway, the Lutzes passed a small sign from the previous owners of the ho- of the house proclaiming the property's name, High Hopes. Mm-hmm. If you remember, Mr. DeFeo had given the, uh, Ron DeFeo Jr. had given the house that name, um, then subjected his family <laughs> to 10 years of terror before being shot um, unceremoniously in the back while he slept. Listen, I'm sure the name was still apt. It's not high deeds. It's not high realities. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Lutzes were amazed at the asking price, despite it being a little bit over what they were looking to pay. But then they heard it was the DeFeo house, and the you know re- the sort of price point made more sense. But again, it didn't really bother them. And Kathy is reported in the book as saying uh, to George, "It's the best we've seen. It's got everything we ever wanted." And more. And much more than they could ever have hoped for. Um, The family moved in on December 18th. The boys' bedroom was uh, placed on the third floor. And, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't tell you about their kids yet. Three kids. Daniel's the oldest. Like I said, he's nine years old. Uh, Christopher is seven. And Melissa, also called Missy, is only five. The boys' bedroom was placed on the third floor. And Missy's uh, furniture was put in a room diagonally opposite her parents on the second floor. Mm-hmm. The family didn't have any living room furniture uh, from their previous place, nothing they wanted to move in. Um, so they threw in $400 over the asking price and the DeFeo's furniture was thrown into the bargain, including their beds. No, I was going to ask. Not yeah. the mattresses, presumably. The The kids had their own beds, but the... but. George and Kathy Lutz were reportedly sleeping in the bed that was previously used by Ron DeFeo and his wife, who's uh, Ron and Louise DeFeo. Listen, you get murdered in a house, whatever, but I'm not, I'm not going to sleep in someone's murder bed. Um, maybe it's not because of any superstition. That's just like, okay, let's, let's cleanse the energy in it's here. It's just gross. I don't even really like secondhand mattresses. <laughs> um, a father... Frank Mancuso in the book. Uh, we <laughs> That's an Italian name. Yes. That's a Long Island name. Some of the people in this book, um, mainly the people who are outside the Lutz family, uh, their names are changed to protect their privacy mm-hmm. and possibly make the paper trail harder to follow. <laughs> and uh, so this father, Frank Mancuso, is actually a uh, then Catholic priest named Ralph Pecorero. That's an Italian Long Island name. So they went Italian Long Island to Italian Long Island. This guy's <laughs> a guy your dad would have been friends with in Pelham. Absolutely. Probably was. Pecorero. Um, but we're going to call him... A Beckahead. But we're going to call him what the book calls him. So remember, this guy's actually Ralph Pecorero, but we're going to go with Frank Mancuso, Father Mancuso, who came to bless the house at the Lutz's request. Um, the book says they had known him for a couple of years at this point. Uh, they had uh, been attending his church and knew him pretty well. And he was happy to come over and bless the house. Father Mancuso didn't tell the Lutzes at the time 
but would later report that he heard a masculine voice yell, Get out! Just as he began to flick holy water in the direction of the house. My friend Kim said that she heard something similar in my living room once. And my dad wasn't home. Was it get out? <laughs> yeah, it was get out. That's, uh, and she left. Well, she listened. Uh, <laughs> Father Mancuso didn't listen immediately. He apparently walks into the house. In, in the book, he walks into the house um, from room to room. He says he gets a really bad uh, pressure sensation on his chest as he walks up to the second floor. And especially pausing outside the room that was supposed to become Kathy's sewing room. Well, you know, that's just the gabagool from lunch. <laughs> hey, I'm feeling a little queasy here. There's three floors, I mean. Um, it's a hike. Father Mancuso left without incident, but he said that later he found dark circles appearing under his eyes. And a strong force, like almost like wind, but there didn't seem to be any wind blowing, something tried to force his truck off the road and onto the shoulder while he was driving home that day. And then, a few minutes later... The truck's hood and right door, passenger side door, just flew open. And then the truck stalled and died right there on the road. Mm. Mancuso said there was nothing that would have caused this. He, uh, you know, opened up the hood and fucked around with the engine for a, a minute before deciding he didn't know what had happened. And a friend gave him a ride back to the rectory. So this is not the part where all the flies happen. Because I think that's how it is in the movie. Is like right at the beginning the the priest comes to bless the house and there's all the flies. Uh, no, the flies start showing up later. Mm. In the first week of, of the house, uh, things started up slowly. The family apparently had a, a pretty idyllic first couple of days before George started being awakened by knocking sounds. And apparently this became a habit for almost every day of the 28 that he lived in the house. George Lutz uh, says that he sat bolt upright in bed, awakened by some kind of noise or sometimes just for no reason at all, apparently, at 3.15 in the morning. Oh, the spooky time. 3.15 on the dot and likely around the time when the murders had been committed. Mm Mm-hmm. Some of the time when he wakes up at 3.15, George looks outside and sees shadows flitting across his backyard. And when he charges out to investigate these uh, shadows and sounds, which he does at first, later in the month he doesn't even bother anymore, Mm. but when he goes out, he always finds that the boathouse door has mysteriously unlocked itself and the the door will be banging back and forth against the boathouse. This is a pretty constant feature throughout the the month that the Lutzes spend in the house. Another constant feature are the personality changes, especially for George, which started subtly at first. Uh, Kathy said he was more irritable at home, and also that he stopped showering and shaving. Now, I don't know about you, but more irritable could be just after moving into this brand new house with your wife and kids, and uh, stopping showering and shaving... Could be because George isn't going to the office anymore. And we all saw what pandemic uh, <laughs> habits looked like. Well, stress, uh, maybe, I, I don't know if it's a depression, but certainly anxiety about this new home, which is a little out of their depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I could see that totally, totally starting to happen. Being a little irritable, not showering. George was also constantly chilly in the house. Kind of like you. Kind of like my grandma. I'm not chilly. I like the house chilly. Yes, sorry. You like the house too chilly. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. It's like George is living with you here because he's constantly going back and forth to the furnace. 
Hmm, and you don't shave. Oh, no. <laughs> He's constantly going back and forth to the furnace and adding more wood. It was a wood-burning th- uh, thermos. Even, even with the thermostat at 80 degrees, George is still walking around the house shivering and uh, uh, going downstairs to put more. Kathy said it was during these first couple of weeks in the house, basically all George did was wander around the house shivering and then feeding more wood into the fire. Which, hey, that's working from home, I guess. I guess. You're on the water. It's, you know, December, January. It is December or January. It's not boat weather yet, and the river was frozen over, but sometimes... No, uh, but it's colder. Yes. But sometimes George would just go out to the boathouse and stand there. Kathy would look That's out... That's just a dad thing. Kathy would look out the window and see George just standing there, looking around for five, ten minutes on end, not doing anything, and then just walking back inside the house. I'm pretty sure our friend Nick from the Unloaded Questions podcast would say that he just does that in his lawn daily. Yes, I think you're right. It's just a homeowner <laughs> dad thing. <laughs> um, the personality changes seem to have affected Kathy a little bit too. Um, or at least, well, night four of the, in night four that they spent in the house, both parents w- collaboratively beat all three of their children. Oh my God. With a strap and a heavy wooden spoon. Have they ever done this before? They say no, but that's what they say. I don't know. Um, The offense, Carrie, the kids had accidentally cracked a pane of glass while they were playing. The kids claimed they hadn't done it, of course. Jeez. Yeah, it must be convenient to blame a ghost on your abuse. Mm Mm-hmm. Starting December 22nd, which would be their fifth day of the house, the whole family started catching snatches of sickly sweet perfume smells all around the house. And at the same time, every toilet in the house had filled with stinky black gunk. It's not described as like poop. It's like a... Um, it's a stinky ghost. Yeah, yeah, but there was like like, like a right. black mold ring completely filling the inside of every toilet bowl that um, Kathy couldn't scrub out completely. And it was right here on day five that as they went from room to room, seeing what else was wrong, Kathy found that one upstairs window was completely covered in hundreds of buzzing flies. Not the flies. And that window was Kathy's sewing room where the priest had gotten such a bad feeling when he had walked up uh, five days before. Mm. Almost immediately after they discovered the flies, they still don't know what to do about that. Uh, George like had to scrape them off more or less individually and like dump them out the window. Um, And then a guy knocked on the door about 40 years old, uh, balding. They described him as uh, red nosed with the uh, cold outside. Although the children had just been playing outside a few hours before the man had coarse features and a six pack of beer in his hands. He was wearing W.C. Fields. Yes, it's W.C. Fields with his big red nose. He's wearing a wool coat, corduroy pants, and construction boots. And uh, the Lutzes have already been in the house for almost a week, but the guy's standing there in their doorway saying, everybody wants to come over to welcome you to the neighborhood. You don't mind, do you? And George said, oh, no, we don't mind. Uh, We don't have furniture yet, guys, but if they don't mind sitting... We just have our murder bed. If they don't mind sitting on cardboard boxes, bring them all, George said. And as he did, he tried to uh, accept the six-pack from the man, but the man kind of firmly held on to it. (laughs) No. Oh, no. These are mine. (laughs) And said to George, "Uh, I brought it. I'll take it with me. (laughs) Then he turned around and left. 
and they never. This isn't haunted. This is just stupid. They never saw him again. That man, Carrie. They say that man was not a neighbor, and he he never appeared. What's so funny? It's just so funny. (laughs) (laughs) This is scary stuff, Carrie. I think of everything they've experienced. This like socially awkward drunk is not the worst. Carrie, they never saw him again. They only lived there for another week. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Uh, Well, what's not funny, Caroline? Poverty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. Um, That night after the DeFeos had gone to bed, George was once again awakened by a horrible wrenching sound. He went downstairs to find that a 250-pound wooden front door had been wrenched off of its hinges Mm. and was standing there like, you know, slanted against the wall. And there was a a large man outside going, can we come in now? Nope. The large man was not outside anymore. Again, they never saw him again, Kim. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, There was obviously they couldn't call a repairman at night, so they just shut the door as best they could, went back to bed. The following morning, Kathy noted with, you know, a sense of unease, to say the least, uh, that all three of her children were sleeping on their stomachs. She said they'd never slept that way before. Ominous when you think of the DeFeo family. Right. That morning, a locksmith came to fix the broken door, uh, and he said that he was out once for the DeFeo family, who had brought him to fix the lock on the boathouse door which they said was always swinging free. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure if it was while the uh, locksmith was there or uh, after he had left, but Father Mancuso called back again. Hey. Hey, I've had a terrible fucking flu over here. <laughs> um, he said he had had flu-like symptoms that had steadily worsened to like a 108-degree fever oh or something, it says in the book. And he had been sick ever since the day he had visited the DeFeo's house. And he kept having horrible dreams about that, about a second floor room where he had gotten a bad vibe. Mm-hmm. He described where the room was. And with a chill, George, of course, realized that it was the sewing room where the, uh, the, the all the flies had been. So he said, well, what do you think we should do about this, father? Fuck if I know. Well, he might have been thinking that, but he didn't have a chance because the call on both ends was interrupted by static. And both men said that they found they couldn't call the other one back after they had hung up the phone. Now, Carrie, one thing we see in basically every or I think every poltergeist situation is uh, a young or pubescent girl in the house. Yeah, can be a boy sometimes, but yeah. Usually a girl, though. Usually a girl. And we've talked about this in our Bridgeport poltergeist episode. Mm -hmm. Go back and check out the, the ghost on Lindley Street. Um which is a much better book, by the way, than this one. Uh, shout out to our friend Bill Hall. Shout out to our friend Bill Hall, um, master magician, master author, master man. <laughs> he's a good guy. <laughs> he seemed nice. He, no, he's great. Uh, he's probably not listening, but we, we love you, Bill. <laughs> wow. I didn't know your feelings went that deep. So uh, young girls and young kids in general are great in these kinds of stories because they often provide the creepiest details just by being little kids mother there's someone at the window um and so one night while out checking on the clanging boathouse door once again again at three fifteen in the morning uh george looked back up toward the house 
and was certain he saw his daughter, Missy, framed in her bedroom window with a face looming behind her that looked like some kind of an animal. He thought of a pig. George sprinted inside (laughs) and up the stairs and found his daughter fast asleep in bed away from the window. Obviously, no pig in the room. But later, I think just the following day, when the kids were told because of A, the flies, and then B, the call from Father Mancuso, when the kids were told that it was time to stay out of the sewing room, we're just not going to go in the sewing room anymore. Mm -hmm. Missy said, I know why we have to keep out. Jody's in there. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. They they said, what do you mean? Who's Jody? And she said, he's my friend. He's my friend, Papa. He's a pig. (laughs) You know. And with that, the Lutz's blood ran cold. (laughs) No. He's a pig. Which is something we say about uh, our dog every day. Well, because he, he snuffles around a lot. But maybe Jody is just very unsanitary. Um, Stinky ghost. And the creepy Jody comments uh, continued for sure. Uh, when the, they got their first Christmas snow, Kathy found Missy ar- alone in her room. And uh, Missy turned to no one and said, isn't the snow beautiful, Jody? To which Kathy said, who are you talking to, Missy? And Angel? Because Missy was obsessed with angels. She was talking, always talking about angels. Okay. Missy said, no, Jody's a pig. <laughs> He's my friend. Nobody can see him but me. So is this a pig, like a, just a regular pig who can talk or like a pig person? Unclear. A we never, we never, At least in the book, we never get more out of Missy than... He's a pig. He's a pig. Well, there is a drawing of him in the book. So uh, he looks like a four-legged pig in that one. So. Okay. Now, also around this time, Kathy started feeling, uh, she had the most physical manifestations of anyone in the house. And Kathy started um, right around, right around Christmas time, December 22nd, 23rd, Kathy started feeling uh, every now and then warm, comforting arms embrace her from behind. Okay. That was the first time. The second time, the arms came in again, but then started to squeeze. We can't have nice things. Um, and this culminated in a, a situation where the arms were holding her uh, totally still. She could, she found she couldn't move, totally paralyzed uh, on the spot with the feeling like there were hands on her shoulders and hands holding her arms in. Hmm. So Kathy collapsed into a, a chair and started crying in her uh, uh, terror when this force finally released her and then heard her daughter's voice right behind her. Jody says you shouldn't cry. He says everything will be all right soon. Fuck off, Missy. (laughs) What do you think? That's creepy. That's some creepy kid stuff. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So what would you do in this situation? I mean, if you're starting to see these kinds of... Do you find these manifestations uh, scary or convincing so far? Well, here's the thing. If I was actually experiencing all of this... Mm -hmm. And this has only been in about a week or just over. It seems like the vibes are bad. Uh-huh. Um, I would probably call in... Oh, God, I don't know what I would do. I would probably try to cleanse the place. Mm-hmm. Probably end up just pissing it off. <laughs> um, maybe call in some sort of expert, whether it's another spiritual person or... I don't know, maybe try to get some more history on the house because obviously we know there were murders, right? But like, where is the pig coming from, you know? it's so funny you say that because that's exactly what George Lutz did. Um, The same day that Kathy felt the arms embrace her and Missy, you know, do the Jody says you shouldn't cry thing. 
George Lutz was in Syosset running some errands. Did I say that right? Syosset, yeah. <laughs> George was in Syosset running some errands. Oh, you would have loved this book, by the way. Massapequa Park is referenced several times. We went times. to Syosset. We went to Massapequa. Um, George looked up old articles on the DeFeo murders. At uh, he, he visited a library and looked up some, some newspaper articles on microfiche. And then uh, from there, headed to the Amityville Historical Society. Okay. I, I like I like this train of action. Now there, George, as claimed in the book, George found records at the Amityville Historical Society that revealed the Shinnecock Indians had used land on the Amityville River, right in the area where George's house currently stood, as an enclosure for the, quote, sick, mad, and dying. But the place wasn't used as a hallowed burying ground by the Indians because they believed uh, there was some horrible evil living there. So it's like a Native American asylum? Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, now, it's... I mean, why would they put their sick and and unwell people there if there was, like, this evil? Like, you won't put your dead there, but you'll put the crazies? Mm. I don't know if... Or maybe it's just a big cycle, you know? That's where the evil comes from. Yeah, this has been largely uh, rejected. This whole idea has been largely rejected oh, by I'm sure the historians. Oh, I'm sure there's, like, historians that know... I've never heard of anything like this in Native American, myth, not mythology, history. Um, obviously, I'm not an expert, but... Well, well, they believed it to be infested with demons from within the earth, which is why it couldn't be a consecrated burial ground. Um, later, the same spot was allegedly used by notorious witch John Ketchum. Oh. Uh, grandfather of The Ash. witch was a man. <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, who... Uh, had, and this is a quote from Jay Anson, had been forced out of Salem, Massachusetts for practicing witchcraft. No. Well, I, I, I did not come across that name on my my very voluminous research. John uh, Ketchum? Yeah, John Ketchum. Is this a real person? Um, there is no reference to him anywhere outside of the Amityville yeah. Horror. Well, if he's notorious, I think there must be something. Yeah, no, people have looked at various different John. There have been people named John Ketchum. None of them lived in Salem. None of them, I mean, uh, none of them were uh, banished from anywhere for witchcraft. I was thinking maybe it could be just a Long Island guy, but yeah. And the extant current living Ketchum family has done extensive genealogy to see if there was a a witch back in their uh, uh, history. And they haven't been able to find any male or female. Hmm. But allegedly this John Ketchum had built his home within 500 feet of where the Lutz house currently stood. And the old witch was buried somewhere on the property. And it had a finished basement. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's about it. Um, And that brings us to the end of the year as far as uh, um, haunted happenings go. Well, except for New Year's Eve of 1976, where as they waited for midnight... As the time burned down on the year, George and Kathy both claim that they saw a hooded, horned demon materialize in the flames of their fireplace. That's just a champagne, baby. And then burn away to ash. Wow. They went immediately to bed and slept for an hour. Now, how do you go right to bed after that? Absolutely not. Um, But after sleeping for an hour, a gust of wind blew every door and window in the house open at once. So they awakened to a giant banging uh, get up and every door upstairs, downstairs, every window thrown open. That's what you get for waterfront living. The only door that was closed as George stalked around the house was Missy's. 
Jody's in here. He likes the door closed. Well, Missy was fast asleep, so she didn't say anything like that. But when George opened the door, the rocking chair in Missy's room in the corner was creaking slowly back and forth. It's kind of adorable to think about a little pig sitting in the rocking chair, though. Here's the best part. The following morning, George woke up thinking, ah, it must have been my imagination, right? He went outside and found giant cloven-hoofed tracks. Santa's been here. In the snow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Pig's getting around. So so there you go. It's the end of uh, 1975, and there's obviously something very rotten in the town of Amityville, New York. And the toilets. And in the toilets, for sure. And we'll get into what 1976 held for the Lutz family after the break. Bicentennial. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had gotten the Lutzes through the first, um, I don't know, almost half of their uh, stay at 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, New York. Uh, What do you think, Carrie? And we still haven't, trust me, we haven't reached the fever pitch of uh, this whole story yet. But uh, what do you think of the Lutzes' story so far? Does it ring true? Does it sound scary? Definitely sounds scary. Um, Mostly I'm just regretting ending the last segment with a coquettish bicentennial. Well, listen, it's 1976. They were were excited. Those quarters were coming out with the little drummer guy on them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other things probably happening. Fireworks, Lots of stuff with drummer guys on them. And as they eased into the new year, the Lutzes were getting increasingly uneasy about their surroundings. On January 4th, George went downstairs to the basement after the compressor in the boathouse suddenly died. He did manage to get it running again, but then he noticed a horrible smell coming from the basement closet, which uh, the real estate agent had informed them had a hidden room behind it that was added by the previous uh, owners. I do hate a crawl space. It was the smell of human excrement, and it got stronger and stronger as he got nearer to the secret room until he got close and vomited on the floor. Yeah, no one wants a poopy closet. (laughs) No, nobody wants a poopy closet. Um, Now, there was this lion statue. I think I mentioned it last last week. Uh, It it fell on Kathy at one point, and then it later seemed to leap up from the floor and bite George on the leg. Um, So uh, they had moved the lion statue into the sewing room and closed the door. We don't go in there anyway. Let's just collect all of the evil shit in the house in one room. Right, and we won't have to deal with it. But as George came up, still retching from the smell of human shit in his basement, the lion statue was back on the table. 
right in the kitchen as he entered the as he entered from the basement. And George, not knowing what else to do, threw it in the garbage can outside. <laughs> the Lutzes went to bed as normal that night, but he, uh, George, that is, was awakened at 3.15 as usual, but this time by drum beats that built into the cacophony of an entire marching band. It's the Bicentennial. It is. They're celebrating the Bicentennial. The marching band doesn't start, Carrie, until our nation is 200 years old. Um, So these are very patriotic ghosts or demons. We know that. Apparently. George goes to investigate the marching band. Uh, (laughs) Doesn't find anything. By the time he's downstairs, it sounds like they're upstairs. When he's upstairs, it sounds like they're downstairs. uh, Clanging around trumpets and trombones. Probably 76 of them, if I had to guess. Mm. When he went back to his bedroom, he found Kathy floating, still unconscious and in her sleeping position, but floating two feet off the bed. That's the exorcist shit. Two days later, on the night of January 6th, Kathy repeated the same routine. As George woke up at 3.15, turned and saw his wife once again floating off the bed, George pulled her back down in this case and was shocked to see that she had the face of a 90-year-old toothless woman. Ooh, the shining style. And George reacts to this like like he seemed truly a monster. And, and, and it makes it clear that he recognizes that it's his wife just old. Like it says, oh. and he saw Kathy's eyes looking out. And it's like, and he reeled back from the wretched horror before him. It's like Of old age. Yeah, geez, this is tough, George. She's going to look like that eventually. Oh, no. Um, so that was uh, very scary to George. He woke Kathy up and uh, after she awakened, she didn't look old anymore but she still had uh, black creased lines down her face, almost as if someone had slashed it, like they were scars. Mm. But they said the creases, too, faded after just a few minutes after she woke up. Hmm. Now it was time to get some extra outside help. Yeah, you think? Right. So the following day, uh, January 7th, George's coworker Eric, I'm putting this in quotes because I'm assuming it's a names changed for privacy thing, uh, or that these people, hear me out, are made up. Uh, Eric brought his his girlfriend Francine over. Uh, Francine claimed to be a psychic and to have been born with a uh, uh, a call over her face. You know when kids are born with like a skin call over their face mm-hmm. and it's like, this is a sign. Of what? We don't know. Yeah, something. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so she claimed to be sensitive. And as she walked around the house, Francine claimed uh, to sense that the house was built on some kind of burial ground. She also felt a whirling, dizzy sensation on the way up the stairs to the second floor. And she stopped in front of the closed sewing room door, looked at the Lutzes and said, You've had problems in there. Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, Then she looked suddenly at George Lutz and intoned in a man's voice that often people in your situation will consider having an exorcism. And that's something I would consider here. She didn't remember saying this. And it was only later that George realized he had heard Father Mancuso's voice. What? So this little, pretty little psychic just suddenly goes like, Hey, you know what I think you should fucking do? <laughs> okay. Ah, uh, you're bringing an exorcist in here, ba-boom-ba-bang. <laughs> ba-boom-ba-bang. Yeah, you know, like people say. <laughs> like Andrew Dice Clay says. Oh! After uh, the psychic left... The Lutzes discovered the second floor banister had been wrenched out of its moorings and torn almost completely off the floor. 
You would love to have time to clean up after something like that, but then family was visiting, and on January 8th, Kathy's brother, Jimmy, and his wife, Carrie, came to visit. Um, Carrie woke the whole house uh, screaming around 3.15 We Carries do that. <laughs> it's C-A-R-E-Y, by the way, for a woman, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, I Sorry, she wakes up almost the whole family because George, it being 3.15, was already <laughs> wide awake. He's probably just going nuts from the lack of sleep. And when they went to Carrie, she said there was a little boy standing at the foot of her bed looking, quote, so sick and asking her to help him. Hmm. Um, Now, Jimmy was sleeping right next to her at the time. He doesn't remember this, so he was trying to convince his wife that she was just dreaming. She said, no, it was so real. And he asked me where Missy and Jody were. Oh, no. Uh, They run to Missy's room, obviously, but Missy was fine. And then George and Kathy immediately took it upon themselves to march around. The word march is used several times. <laughs> uh, march around to all unoccupied rooms in the house. They left the kids alone, figuring they would bless their rooms tomorrow. That's the only way you can walk in the bicentennial. With a crucifix. No, let's not invoke the marching band again, please. <laughs> they march around to all unoccupied rooms with a crucifix, uh, saying the Lord's Prayer. But in the living room, as she began to launch into the prayer for, I imagine, the dozenth time, uh, Kathy was interrupted by a hum that filled the house, then turned into a swell of jumbled voices. And then all the voices joined together, finally, into one screamed phrase, Will you stop? Yikes. Um, Oh, as long as we're talking about Jimmy and Carrie, too, I should mention Jimmy had previously lost $1,500 at the Lutz house. Um, He stayed with them just the night before their wedding. And had like some honeymoon money. And he was like, hey, look at this. And then the envelope was gone the next morning. At a different earlier. House? Yes. No, this is at the Lutz's house, but earlier. The Lutz's got married while they were living there? No, Jimmy and Carrie. Sorry. Oh, oh okay. They had stayed with the Lutz's earlier. It was on a day that I skipped over. It wasn't important. But They stayed twice in a month span? Get yeah. out of here. And while, while your sister and her husband are being like haunted, like you know, have in a, a little, new house, like a little decency for Christ's sake. Lay off. The day after Jimmy and Carrie left, George found a weird green slime oozing from the ceiling above the staircase. It sounds like a bunch of individual like pools of slime above on the ceiling, each dripping down onto the stair below. George said, <laughs> this is wild. George said it looked like jello, green jello, but had no taste. He tasted it? He touched one of the puddles and... No, not after the poopy closet. And licked the tip of his finger. George. Um, George and Kathy thought the kids had done it at first and started like screaming at them and getting ready to beat them with the spoon and the strap again. And then they realized they weren't even sure how the kids could have done that and uh, that there was a lot of weird stuff going on around the house and wondered why they had gotten so angry. But then it sounds like George basically sat catatonically in an armchair for about three hours and then just went Licking nuts. the wall. And then just went nuts, like stood up and started once again marching around the house. But this time, instead of praying, he was just screaming. Just get out, you bastards, get out! And he continued this for like half an hour. Jesus. O- opened every window in the house just screaming. There was a policeman across the street, actually, who saw this. <laughs> he was like, oh. He was like, I don't really want to deal with this. And he recognized the owner of the house, and then it didn't see it seemed like it quieted down. So he was like, okay. Long Island cops. That's right. Um, the next day, January 10th, Kathy awoke covered in angry red welts all down her belly. They said from just below her breasts to just above her pubic hair. 
Okay, Jay Anson. <laughs> um, so George and Kathy's mother, who came over, uh, called in a panic, you know, to, to come check out this medical condition, um, said the, the blisters or welts were painfully hot to the touch. Like the mother touched one and went, oh, I burned myself. Then she licked her finger. And then she licked her finger. It tastes fine. Um, the welts like vanished within the hour after the mother showed up. Hmm. But later, George sent Danny, one of his sons, up to close the bedroom window in their bedroom, the same bedroom Kathy had awoken with the welts, and the window slammed shut on his hand. Ugh. They had to rush the kid to the hospital, and the intern on duty, apparently, was amazed to see that Danny's fingers were completely... I don't even know how to picture this, Carrie, but this is what it says in the book. They were, picture, they were flattened completely Ugh. from the cuticle to the second knuckle. Ugh. But the bones were not broken. They were just separated? Not even separated. Just... just Gone? No, not gone. They were just... Well, it had to be separated or broken, Sean. That's what I think. <laughs> but it says that the finger, the bones didn't need to be... You know, the bones were not broken, but the finger, the hand was flat. So explain that to me. I don't know how it works. Did they fix it? Maybe just the uh, uh, skin was... Pre- you know, maybe just the flesh part of it was, was flattened out to the bone, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they wrapped his hand up and sent him home. He was fine uh, a couple days later. Okay. But you can see things are now starting to build to uh, what we can maybe call our fever pitch. On January 11th at 6.30 a.m., George found that he had, after the emergency room and everything, uh, fallen asleep in his chair. And then he was awakened by the rain on his face. Because all of the windows in the house were once again open, as well as all of the doors. In fact, some of the window panes had been broken, and some of the doors were broken and smashed off of their hinges. Even a few that had been locked and bolted the night before. Hmm. By the time the family got up, there was almost an inch of muddy water in the kitchen that now had to be all cleaned up. Shitty way to wake up. Yeah, well, and it doesn't get any better. While they're doing this cleanup, Missy insisted on dragging her father upstairs to introduce him to her friend, Jody the pig, who she said wanted to talk to him. Read the room, Missy. Um, And Missy's going, no, he's right there. Can't you see him? And points to the bedroom window. George followed her finger and says that he saw outside a pair of red eyes framed in one of the window panes. And then his wife taking matters into her own hands, suddenly rushed past him into his view and smashing that pane of glass with one of Missy's play chairs. Like, she picks it up and just... Like freaking Lucha Underground. Yes, very Lucha Underground. We want tables. The Lutzes both heard a pig's squeal of pain, and the eyes vanished. Um, now, this has been a lot of talk about Jody, and it's starting to get pretty sinister. So the next day, Kathy finally, and you'd think you would have done this before, finally asked Missy more about her imaginary friend. Yeah, you ask about it. She said, um, well, what does he say when he talks to you? And Missy replied, he tells me about the little boy who used to live in my room. He died, Mama. The little boy got sick, and he died. And she said, I see. What else did he tell you? And this is my favorite. Missy said, last night, he said I was going to live here forever so I could play with that little boy. Absolutely not. You're noping right out of there, right? No. Yeah, that that's beyond the pale. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Lutzes kind of thought the same thing. This was kind of a last straw moment for them. And on January 13th, they tried to leave. 
George got everybody in the car, loaded up some bags, left most of their stuff behind, and the engine failed to turn over in the driveway. Just no sparks at all. Or it failed to turn over, so... Call a cab. This is like, this is not the middle of nowhere. Oh, it's even more than that. George gets out of the, yeah, you're right. It's a small town of about 10,000. It is not the country. Yeah. Um, George gets out of the car and goes to open the hood. And then a torrential downpour of rain starts on his head, almost Charlie Brown style. Only on him? No, on the whole house in town. Um, But now it was storming. And so George dejectedly got the family out of the car and back into the house. And they just stayed. But I don't see if you really want to get out. I don't know how the rainstorm. Call a cab. Call a cab. It's call- like a bit. It's not a busy street, but it's like a normal suburban neighborhood. It's yep. not. These houses are right next to each other. Like it's not the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. That night there was a little bit of weirdness. I mean, Kathy did some sleepwalking around their room. And then um, the dog. I, they, they have a dog in, in all this. Harry. I think he was like a German shepherd mix or some big dog. Uh, Harry was throwing up after mm. Kathy was sleepwalking around. Then George was cleaning up the vomit and he threw up. None of this seems supernatural. He seems to like me. a sensitive stomach kind of guy. He just seems sensitive in general in, in some ways. Um, anyway, he cleans up all this vomit. He's not having a great night. His wife was catatonic after the, he couldn't wake her up after the sleepwalking thing. So he's feeling weird. <laughs> but he climbed back into bed. And then as he was laying there, George heard a heavy sliding sound wood on wood from above him and as he sat there listening george realized he was listening to his son's beds sliding around the floor of their room upstairs Mm -mm. he start he tried apparently he tried to get up and bolt up there to see what was wrong with his kids or what was happening to his sons but he found he was totally paralyzed in bed couldn't get up couldn't sit up couldn't move then the dresser drawers in George and Kathy's room started opening and closing on their own and keeping kind of a beat. And where there's a beat, Carrie, that's right. The marching band joined back in. <laughs> and so here's George. They can't resist. So here's George. He's pinned down in bed. He can't move. He hears his son's beds just whipping around upstairs like a, the Indy 500 or something. And down here, uh, all of the drawers are now. <laughs> this is hell (laughs) it is um and then george says oh i must have passed out from the panic and the terror of what was happening because then i was suddenly woken up the next thing i know i'm woken up by my son tugging at my arm Mm -hmm. so george wakes up in bed with the son tugging on his arm and telling him that there was a faceless monster in their room hanging over their beds George is is at his last straw. He's over it. He actually truly is at this point because George finally summons the strength to push off of his bed, steps into the hall, looks to his left, and sees at the top of the third floor landing a figure in a white hood. No. He couldn't see its face, but as he watched, the finger extended a hand and one finger and pointed at George Lutz. Hmm. Rushing back into the bedroom, uh, Kathy was still asleep or catatonic one or the other so george we have george carrying kathy he lifts her up off the bed carries her to the van outside while he yells for the boys to go and get missy the whole family gets in the van the engine turns over right away and they all just get the hell out of dodge Hmm. and so ended the lutz's stay at 112 ocean avenue 28 days after they had initially moved in 
I always thought it ended with like George trying to kill everyone. No, that's from the movies. Oh. Um, that night, the Lutzes went and stayed with Jimmy and Carrie. You know, it's only right well, there. Well, yeah. Repay the favor at this point. Um, but that night, George and Kathy claimed that they were both levitated out of bed in their sleep. First, George and Kathy saw it happen. Then they went back to sleep and uh, George saw it happen to Kathy. God, it's like a post credit sequence. They said, we got to get out of this house too, obviously. But when they left the room, they saw a trail of green black slime coming up the stairs at them. Swamp thing. Swamp thing. Uh, it was clear that whatever evil the Lutzes had found at Ocean at 112 Ocean Avenue, it did follow them as far as Jimmy and Carrie's house. The family moved to California within the next couple of weeks, and the frightening incidents did not follow them out there. They were finally free of the terror. Hmm. But not everything was over at the house in Amityville. And as previously mentioned, Ed and Lorraine Warren got themselves involved in this. Mm-hmm. After the aforementioned New York Channel 5 News arranged an investigation and three seances over the course of a night. Hmm. Uh, Lorraine Warren. Let's treat this as, as an introduction to the Warrens, although we've mentioned them plenty of times on the podcast before. Uh, Lorraine claimed to be a sensitive clairvoyant. And her husband, Ed, was a self-proclaimed, self-taught demonologist. Um, also present in this in this particular investigation were uh, George Kikoris from the Psychical Research Institute and Mary Pascarella and Alberta Riley, who were both psychics. Obviously self-proclaimed. Um, during one of the seances, the first seance of the night, um, Mrs. Pascarella became ill and had to leave the room. And she seems to disappear from the rest of the investigation. So she became very ill. Um, and she said... As she was having kind of a fainting fit, she said, In back of everything, there seems to be some kind of a black shadow that forms a head. And it moves. And as it moves, I feel personally threatened. During the same seance, Mrs. Riley, in a gasping trance, said, It's upstairs, in the bedroom. What's here? It makes your heart speed up. My heart is pounding. Uh, Ed Warren started to get concerned, as he often did in these situations. You know, his wife would start having, like, uh, problematic symptoms or some kind of a fit, and Ed would go, we need to stop this, it's dangerous. Yeah, we see that in The Conjuring, yeah, one so and two. It's like one of his trademark moves, so... Well, when it's Patrick Wilson, it's very romantic. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, you know. But, you know, my point, they, they have to reach into the bag of tricks, you know. They have a, they have a show they have to put on, the, the Warrens do. And so, in your opinion. And so he, uh, he, he pulls out the, we gotta stop, we have to put an end to this. Um, as George Kikoris got violently ill, that's a quote unquote, and had to leave the table. Violently ill implies to me, <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, let's end this seance at that point. Once yeah. the table's covered in, in uh, bile. Mm-hmm. Later on, Lorraine said, whatever is here is, in my estimation, most definitely of a negative nature. It has nothing to do with anyone who once walked the earth in human form. It is right from the bowels of the earth. Hmm. Um, the investigation was pretty brief. I mean, after that, it was kind of time to sell the house and stuff. Um, so it was really, as far as I can tell, just that one night. But afterward, Ed and Lorraine gave numerous interviews, and uh, the whole thing was a pretty nice publicity boost for their New England Society for Psychic Research, which they had started all the way back, I think, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. First um, psychic research society in New England. 
So that's cool. Yeah. Now, at this point, um, Ed and Lorraine had already participated in the investigations that would spawn the Annabelle and Conjuring movies. But it was uh, this investigation that really kind of uh, got them to national media attention. And, and obviously, because this book was such a big seller, this is what got the Ed and Lorraine's names into the most people's hands. Um, at a junket for the Conjuring movie, the first Conjuring movie in t- 2013, Lorraine Warren was asked by one reporter to compare that case, the uh, the one The Conjuring is based on, which was in, in England, right? Yeah. The Conjuring 2? Oh, no. The Conjuring. That one was Rhode Island yes. near the Connecticut border, I think. Um, Lorraine was asked to compare that case with the Amityville one, which one is scarier, you know? Mm-hmm. And she said it was no contest. Amityville was horrible, honey. It was absolutely horrible. It followed us right straight across the country. I don't even like to think about it. I will never go in the Amityville house ever again. You don't know how long my career is. That's the only one. Hmm. Well, I mean, they do reference it in the Conjuring movie of like this kind of specter of an event that happened beforehand and he's really worried about her and all that stuff. Well, in that movie, it feels like something they have to reference because... Any audience member going in who knows the names Ed and Lorraine Warren only know it from the Amityville story, probably. Most people, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so what is going on in this house, Carrie? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Anson concludes in the book that there are at least three distinct entities residing in the house. Um, Francine the medium detected at least two ghosts. Mm-hmm. And by ghosts here, we're, we mean like the ex-person kind of ghost. Yes. Um, there was the little boy that both Missy and Carrie had mentioned seeing. Uh, Missy didn't see the boy, but he was mentioned to her that she would be playing with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be one of the, the ghosts. And then, um, I don't know, maybe that neighbor with the six-pack of beer could, <laughs> be, could be the other ghost. He's just... A random Long Island local. Well, Francine had also detected an an elderly female presence in the house. But the hooded figure, seen by George and Kathy in the fireplace, and later seen by George at the top of the stairs, it's been suggested that is some kind of inherently evil or malevolent entity. A demon, Mm -hmm. if you will. The theory as it goes in the uh, Amityville horror book is that this evil could have been invited in by previous occult rituals performed on the site, either in its, you know, possible history as a, as a Native American asylum uh, or in its possible use by a Salem witch who probably <laughs> didn't exist. And what about Jody the pig? Oh, I think that is another face of the hooded demon figure. Interesting. He really went with pig on that one. Well, once you introduce yourself to the child as a pig, I think you have to keep playing that card. Hmm. Now the kid wants to see the pig. Yeah, but but making the jump to pig is interesting. <laughs> um, before we really put any final conclusions on this, Carrie, I think it's really important to discuss the process and history of this book a little bit more. Yeah, I'm wondering how he got his hands on this story. Yeah, uh, yeah, because this was written, as we said, by Jay Anson. It was published by Prentice Hall. And Anson didn't work directly with the Lutzes, Uh I think he met them at some point before he started work on the book, but he didn't like do interviews with them. Uh, instead, the Lutzes gave him 45 hours of tape-recorded recollections by both George and Kathy. But w- where did they make the leap to, we're doing a book about this? 
Well, we we don't want to do any press about this, but now we're doing a book. Funny enough, Caroline, that all comes back to William Weber, uh huh, the attorney for Ron DeFeo Jr. Uh, Weber says that he's the one who first brought the idea of a book to the Lutz family. Uh, he brought actually was representing a small company at that point, uh, formed for the purposes of this book, uh, Hoffman, Weber, Burton, and Mars Corporation where uh, author Paul Hoffman was supposed to write the book and take 40% of the profits. And then Weber, Burton, Mars, and each of the Lutzes would take each... Kathy and George, the kids don't don't get their own cuts. Um, Each of the Lutzes would uh, get 12%. Will Jody get a cut? So that's 24 for the the family. Mm -hmm. Uh, That book deal was sent to the Lutzes in March of 1976. So actually not that long after they moved out of this house. Oh, that's very soon after. About a month after that, uh, less than a month after the press conference they gave from Weber's office. Mm -hmm. Um, But they eventually signed the deal with Anson and Prentice Hall instead because that book deal gave them 50% of the profits collectively, the Lutzes. Good business decision. Great business decision. Um, But the... Other corporation they had that had been courting them felt a little bit miffed uh, at their uh, kind of last minute abandonment of the deal and tried to make whatever hay they could with it. Uh, Paul Hoffman did publish two articles, more or less identical to each other, um, from the research he had already done with the Lutzes. And one is called Life in a Haunted House, and it was published in the New York Sunday News, July 18th, 1976. The following year, in Good Housekeeping, in the April issue... <laughs> Uh, man, I miss the days when just these bonkers ass articles would be in like ladies magazines. Our dream house was haunted was the title. Crazy. Um, Hoffman and Weber claim that they brainstormed the ideas present in those articles and in the Amityville Horror book with the Lutzes over the course of several meetings in 1976. Weber's like, throwing a marching band, throwing a pig, whatever. Uh, what's that, Carrie? You, 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 what reason do you have to believe William Weber? Why would you, and, and Paul Hoffman, right? They could just be uh, lying. We would need to be, this to be dragged into a court of law to get any kind of a... Well, in May 1977, <laughs> George and Kathy Lutz decided to sue Hoffman, Weber, Burton, Mars, Good Housekeeping, and the New York Times Sunday News, sorry, the New York Sunday News, and the Hearst Corporation, which owned, I don't know, at least one of those magazines, probably both, for four and a half million dollars. That would be $21.2 million today. and chunk of change. And this was for using George and Kathy's names in the article that he wrote and invading their privacy by using the um, research without permission. Mm Mm-hmm. for their part, Hoffman, Weber, and Burton each countersued for $2 million apiece, uh, claiming that the Lutzes had perpetrated a fraud and breached their contract. Hmm. The court felt this way about it. On September 10th, 1979, the Lutzes' suit was dismissed, but the three counterclaims were allowed to continue and were later settled uh, for an undisclosed sum. Judge Jack B. Weinstein said... Based on what I have heard, it appears to me that to a large extent, the book is a work of fiction, relying in large part on the suggestions of Mr. Weber. That same week, in an article in an interview with People magazine, Weber said that, quote, I know this book is a hoax. We created this horror story over many bottles of wine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some documents from this ca- uh, court case have been unsealed by later requests of uh, involved, actually, family of uh, 
Ron DeFeo, oddly enough, who are looking for a little closure. The unsealed document is the testimony of one Father Ralph Pecorero, dramatized as Frank Mancuso Mm -hmm. in the book, who testified during this lawsuit that the accounts taking place in the book never happened. Damn, Father. In fact, Father Pecorero, a.k.a. Mancuso, hadn't known the family for years, met them for the first time on the day that he showed up to bless their house, and never entered the house at all. Well, that's not very good blessing, is it, Father? Um, (laughs) You gotta at least cross the threshold. That is true. Throw some holy water on the floor, you know? But in some accounts, I have heard him say that he thinks he heard get out when he was blessing the house. So... That may explain why he didn't go inside, and it also is is one thing that uh, I'm not totally sure that he heard that he it's you would see if you if you look up all his different quotes it's on fog. it. He's gone back and forth about whether that part actually happened. Um, but largely, Carrie, this is a book that uh, features a child's pencil drawing of a pig apparently running through snow as evidence. There's no photos in this book, but this picture. No, this is this is actually George's drawing. <laughs> <laughs> um, this picture by Missy takes up a full page toward the end of the book. Wow. Well, Missy is destined to uh, not be an artist. Um, yeah. So what about uh, future occupants, though? The house was purchased by Jim and Barbara Cromarty in 1977. The Cromartys never found any supernatural phenomena in the decade they lived in the house. No poopy closet? No poopy closet, but they were plagued by tourists. Yes. To the point that they eventually changed the address of the house to something I won't share right now. Um, And as we mentioned, the famous eye-shaped windows would be made square by the next owner after the Cromartys. Um, but the Cromarties were not happy about that. I guess, I guess there were just like droves of looky-loos on, oh, their, to this day. on their property every day. Um, I mean, I've done it. <laughs> You're not really <laughs> supposed to like get out and, and walk around and stuff. But you, you go to school 20 minutes away. You gotta, gotta drive by the Amityville Horror House. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually the Cromarties held a press conference a public press conference just to debunk the claims of the Amityville Horror book Leave and us movie. alone. Yes, and, and sued the Lutz family and Jay Anson and the publisher for fraud and for invasion of privacy. You're making a face like you don't think that lawsuit has merit. They moved in knowing that this was in the pipeline. I actually completely agree with you. Uh, I, I don't think that holds water. Well, they did reach some kind of undisclosed settlement, so the Cromarties did get paid off it. Eh. Um, do you want to hear part of their press conference? Sure. Sure. Uh, so Barbara Cromartie said in part, the quiet village of Amityville, Long Island has been made. (laughs) That's like a, like a Boston Kennedy thing I'm doing. Um, the quiet village of Amityville, Long Island has been made infamous. Do you want to read it actually? You Long Island this up. The quiet village of Amityville, Long Island has Long Island has been made infamous by a hoax. It will possibly never be the same. It is Long Island's equivalent to Watergate. None of us would be here today if a responsible publisher and author had not given credibility to two liars and allowed them the privilege of putting the word true on a book in which, in all actuality, is a novel. The credibility of the hoax stems from using a charlatan Catholic priest who has been banned from performing his religious duties by the Diocese of Rockville Center, the equivalent of a disbarment by a lawyer. 
This charlatan priest has been involved with complicity to lie and therefore deserves no credibility and should be dealt with accordingly. The great Marissa Tomei, circa 1992, everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My biological clock is ticking. Like this! Um, George and Kathy would eventually divorce in 1980. Uh, Kathy passed from emphysema in 2004, George of heart disease in 2006, and of course, Ron DeFeo Jr., the guy who kicked all this off by killing his whole family, Died in 2021, so there's not too many people left who uh, were around and cognizant as of this uh, story. The kids, by the way, the Lutz kids um, have never wanted to discuss this at all. I've never seen anything with them get, giving interviews or anything like that. I saw that. one interview with one of the sons, I think it was Matt, where he says like he is pretty sure something happened in the house, but he thinks it was all exaggerated quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the daughter seems traumatized by the whole ordeal or puts on that affectation and has never given an interview. Hmm. Um, One more little bit of legal involvement for George Lutz, though. In 2005, he did, as I mentioned, file a libel suit against the producers of the Amityville Horror remake. Because in that version, Carrie, uh, the George Lutz stand-in character, they changed his name to something, but the, the guy who's supposed to be the George Lutz of it all. The Ryan Reynolds. The Ryan Reynolds. The shirtless Ryan Reynolds. Shirtless Ryan Reynolds uh, goes crazy and tries to kill his family, fires a gun at his wife and kids. Now, that kind of thing didn't happen in the movie? Like, the first one, I mean. Um, I haven't seen it in a very long time. Because, I I mean... But the Lutzes were involved... Like, the Lutzes were fine with the production of that one. And I know George sued the producers of the remake. Better put that shirt back on, Ryan, or you're going to lose <laughs> it. You know what? Maybe that was it. Maybe he was suing the uh, producers for making him gay. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds isn't gay. No, 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 no. For, for uh, oh, making for George Ryan. gay when he watched Ryan Reynolds in the movie. <laughs> He's cut in that movie, like, unnecessarily. Like, this is a horror movie where you're playing a dad. He's still Ryan Reynolds. He's never got, a, like, a flat stomach. This is pre-Deadpool. This is pre-all that. So it just seemed very unnecessary. It's he, like, this This is Van Wilder? Yeah, but in Two Guys in a Pizza... What is it? Two Girls, a Guy in a Pizza Place? He's not cut in that. It, he He looks like he's ready to be an assassin in that one. Yeah, an assassin of your heart. Ugh, Christ. (laughs) You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together, we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. No news this week, friends. Uh, there's been plenty of news going around. And us talking about like a baby woolly mammoth's bones being found or Clone whatever. Elvis. It's not really going to uplift very much. Um, so we're just giving you a little a little news pause. 
enjoy enjoy a lack of news enjoy for your, once. Enjoy your news pause. <laughs> enjoy uh, no news. <laughs> um, hey, Carrie, how about, uh, remember the Lindley Street uh, poltergeist story? Very well. Uh, isn't it amazing how this book and this story is just a worse, less scary version of that? Yeah, well, that's the one paranormal story, I think, that is really really stuck in your craw, really th- made you think and consider. Yeah, while I was reading that book, I was pretty ready to believe in telekinesis. <laughs> At <laughs> well, least only for uh, pubescent girls. <laughs> Listen, my name's Carrie, all right? I get it. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you'd think that there's there's more to it because it's so famous and there's a zillion films based on it and it's such a like the amityville horror you can't think of amityville new york without thinking amityville horror even if you've never seen the movie you can't it's like luke i am your father it's like ingrained in the public consciousness right and that book had so much corroboration and uh was so well organized at the end and and the lindley street yes the world's most haunted house by bill hall our aforementioned pal yeah (laughs) maybe we'll see him at uh at paracon uh, speaking yes. of which, uh, we should mention that we're going to be returning to uh, Connecticut's first uh, paranormal convention. Yes. So we were there last July, and it was a blast. And uh, so many people showed up, more than we had ever anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, so come on back this time. Uh, we're going to be in Ansonia, Connecticut at the... Ansonia Armory. Ansonia Armory. There it, you go. The uh, abandoned and potentially haunted Ansonia Armory. <laughs> and this will be Saturday and Sunday, July 16th and 17th. We'll be there all day. We'll have a, a table there. We have some little bits of merch. I don't think we're going to have anything big, but we'll have stickers and stuff. And um, just come on by. Talk about your favorite episodes. Talk about what you want us to cover. Um, yeah. Just tell us you listen, because that'll, that'll be nice. Oh, it'll make us feel great. <laughs> um, last year, we saw uh, thousands of people over those couple of days. Yeah, and- we heard a lot of great stories. I bought a lot of things for the house. I, I, brought, I bought a... Uh, that two remember that really expensive two disc thing soundtrack vinyl mm-hmm. that I bought? Yeah, yeah there's going to be some great... Vendors. Uh, vendors there. Um, and, you know, I'll probably try and reach out to some of them beforehand just to get, you know, a few names on the board. But last last year, I got like a, a wet specimen little octopus in a jar, which was very adorable. Um, I got some really cool stained glass. There's a Weirdo Wonderland has a stall there, which is a great, great shop in Milford, Connecticut, right near our friends at Static Era. Mm-hmm. And they sell everything. I mean, I could stay in there. It's a small shop. I could stay in there for hours. They sell everything cool. Oh, and if you're into tarot, palm reading, any of yeah. that stuff, there's a ton of... Uh, psychics, psychics will be there. So. Um, other merch. There's, a, there's t-shirts. There's posters. Anything horror you can find there. Yep. And, and, and uh, we'll be there with... Uh, stickers and possibly t-shirts i just said <laughs> well i know there will be t-shirts there for, but but from us did you say there would be t-shirts from us listen let's see how the stickers go and we'll be right with uh father of the pod paul ferrante yet again uh probably set up right next to him so you can go talk to him about his books bill hall's going to be there he's going to have his his books on the Lindley Street. Again, if you want to read the Amityville Horror, just skip it and read the Lindley Street. Something Seriously. might have actually happened. Yeah, there. like if if it's gotten Sean to go, maybe. Yeah. Then it's a good book. And um and then there's also gonna be the amazing Kreskin, who's like a mentalist. He was on Johnny Carson and yep. stuff, right? I'm looking forward to so that. So you're excited for that. So yeah, come and visit us July 16th and 17th, Ansonia Armory, Ansonia, Connecticut. Um 
we'll be happy to see you. It was so much fun last year, and this year it's just going to be bigger and better. Absolutely. We're looking forward to it. Yeah. And that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. And special thanks to uh, our beloved top-tier patrons and everyone else joining us over on Patreon. Um, but I want to specially and personally thank... And you know I love all of these people. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. And you can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 